Welcome back to Balagan. Today we're going to discuss a very special person. He wasn't the most connected and he definitely wasn't the most famous, but his commitment was the greatest. Isaiah C. Cannon was a passionate Zionist who changed the relationship and America's commitment to the establishment of Israel. Along with my friend, Kobe Barda, who researched APAC and learned its history, we will dive and discuss this person who made an impact with an ongoing influence today. Kobe Barda is a PhD candidate at Haifa University and the author of APAC's Grassroots Path to Congress and a dear friend of the podcast. Welcome back, Kobe. We're happy to have you here today. Thank you very much for hosting me. My pleasure. So tell us, who was Isaiah C. Cannon? Where did he come from? What's his background? Well, I think as you mentioned at your intro, uh, I think he is one, if not the most uncredited Zionist activist in uh, the life or the connection, if you would, between the American Jewry and Israel. When I first dive into that idea of try to understand about APAC, which was my thesis, by the way, at the Haifa University, Um, there wasn't that much about Kenan, especially not on the ongoing most important books of the lobby, if you want, which by the way, I'll open brackets, most of the time, if not all of the time, are very crucial or very hard the way that they're presenting APAC, both if it's people such as Volt and Mersheim at the uh, the Israel lobby, and other researchers and scholars that uh, usually when they talk about APAC, they do that uh, from a position of bad influence on the American politics. So the common understanding about APAC and about the creator, Sikhenen, that he was a clerk, if you would, that wasn't too much influential On the organization, which most of the people or most of the scholars would argue that APAC, which by the way, it's true, got the most important boost at the 80s. And therefore, if you would like to find something about him, you would hardly find something that has a value. And truly, when I start to dive into the material, I was kind of amazed about the the way he act and the way he operated. And I think that today in the podcast, I will try to share some of my knowledge of, I would estimate it, thousands of hours of reading materials from different archives about his unique way and the milestone that he planted not only for APAC, but for lobby grassroots as a whole. Because unlike the APAC, which strive and flourish and exist today since the 50s, all the other organizations, some of them, by the way, created artificially by the CIA as a plot, if you may, against uh, the policy towards Israel in the 50s with Eisenhower, that the option was to form a lobby that worked against Israel. the Israelis on the Arab side, none of them exist today. None of them. Zip. Nothing. Okay? 
And APAC was rated in two different surveys as second most masculine lobby in Washington, D.C. That was the exact phrase, masculine lobby. So if you'd like to understand or to get a better understanding how APAC today has more than 100,000 registers of friends or, or members in its organization, we need to go back to its establishment. But before getting to the establishment, I do want to start with a brief opening about Kennan, where he was and how he made his first moves towards Zionism. Because that may explain, by the way, why there is not a lot of research about him. He was born and raised in Canada. After that is correct. <laughs> that, 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 that is correct. He was born into a very Zionist family in Canada. His sister, which also, that's a byproduct of my work. Her name is Anna Raginsky. She was one of the founders of Adassa, And uh, she eventually headed the organization in the 40s, the Canadian uh, the 40s. So we're looking at a family which was deeply rooted in the Zionist movement. And each one of the individuals in the family have strived and have pushed the Zionist agenda in the days before the uh, establishment of Israel, each one of them in his own court. But as you started said, he was born and raised in Canada but soon enough, he left to Cleveland, Ohio, where he graduated law school in the 30s. And he was the first ever creator of the Lawyers Guild in Ohio. And uh, that led him to know one of the most important Jewish activists, Rabbi Hillel Silver. And Rabbi Hillel Silver, in which he get to know him back in his hometown in Cleveland, Ohio, redraft him to organization that was an umbrella organization in the days of the beginning of the 40s, which tried to promote the option of creation of Israel. So he served the organization as the secretary general of the organization. And the organization mainly at the beginning was, if you may, the long extension of the Jews in America. And the name of the organization was the American Jewish Conference. And uh, it was established in 1943. So during the war and after the war, they were the representative of the American Jewry to the talks about establishment of Israel. So just a different whole podcast, if you want, I would love to do that, about the very, very crucial, important role of the Jews in the United States to the establishment of Israel. You know, now it's the legacy of Truman supporting in the state of Israel, the first country to support Israel, but he was torn apart. And he said, that that was by far the most hard thing he ever needed to take. We're looking at the guy who dropped two nuclear bombs. We're looking at the guy who finished the Second World War, looking at the guy who created the CIA and other agencies. And he says that by far the most complicated decision that he took was the creation of Israel. And let me tell you that without the Jewish jury, 
that put enormous political pressure on him because that was the year of election, November 1948, yes? There was nothing happening. So that actually is the foundation of the first step into the lobby as a lobby, like when you're approaching a house, okay? So this is the lobby of our story, is a very important role of the American Jewry towards the establishment of Israel. So at the year 1947, Moshe Sharet, which will become eventually the Prime Minister of Israel and the Foreign Minister of Israel, he was moving to New York in order to start and perform active role in the days to come in order to liaison the effort to the establishment of Israel. And he hired C. Kennan as the spokesperson of the convey of soon to become Israel mission to the UN. And the first four years of C. Kennan, actually three years, 1948 to 1951, he was the press officer of the Israel embassy in the U.S. to the U.N., which back in the days were at Queens, not where it's now in Manhattan. And he was part of the establishment of the Israeli corps or mission to the U.S. and to the U.N. He served under the leadership of Abba Evan, which will later become the foreign minister and the ambassador to Washington. So our story begins in the evening that Abba Evan is preparing himself to another speech, and it's uh, late 51, and Israel is under a severe siege. Israel people did not have enough calories. They had a severe problem of trying to stand on two feet, trying to observe Jews from the diaspora coming in massive waves, some of them from the Holocaust, from Europe, and other of them came from Arab states, more than 700,000. It was the ostracity area in Israel, when we hardly had any money and there was a lot of, uh, everything was budgeted. More than that, Kobe, I found papers that we will approach later what Kennan was the first thing that he did. But we were on the verge of bankruptcy to the Bank of England, where Israel loaned money, and if he did not get the money, uh, I'm just hinting the next five minutes, then Israel estate might collapse. Okay, so we're talking about people that are eating 400 or 500 calories a day, that was what they could eat. No gasoline, no nothing. Israel was in the darkest day since its creation. That was just three years beforehand, surrounded by Arabs, countries who wished to finish what they started in 1948. And under that severe problem, the Israeli government understand that they need to approach to Uncle Sam and try to find out whether they would be able, with their generosity, to support some U.S. aid to the people who live in Israel. So, at that Saturday night, late hours of that Saturday night, Abba Evan told C. Kennan, listen, we need 
to approach the Americans. I'm trying to do my best here, but I just did not penetrate enough. I don't know what we need to do. Maybe the best solution for that will be that we will appoint someone who will be physically in Washington and try via Congress to press on the foreign ministry, on the State Department and the presidency. That was a fresh look of Ava Evan of how to try to find a way in order to play in the political arena in a different perspective that they tried to achieve up to this day. So he tells Kennan, we need to find someone. And they're trying to interview people to the job and they couldn't find anyone. So eventually Abba Evan told him, listen, you have to go. That is a mission. It will be in a limited time, but you have to go. You have to go and you have to try to convey our message to the congressmen and to the Senate. What Kennan uh, understand at that point is that there was a law, the establishment of it was in the year 1938, and it caused the Foreign, uh, the foreign, Agents, uh, the foreign Agent Act of the yeah. 1938. By the way, we just recently heard about that in the stories of the administration of Trump and people that... Uh, represent few countries without making declaration about or coming forward. There's a specific route you need to take. You need to register yourself in the Ministry of uh, Justice. Uh, you need to come up uh, every few months, the report and detail the papers that you give. You're not allowed to approach anyone before getting permission, et cetera, et cetera. So Kennan understand that if he would go through that way, representing the state of Israel, because he worked for the state of Israel, that will definitely be a failure. He calls that in his paper, cripple. I could not do a crippled job. So he's telling Abba Evan that I need to resign. Think about it. He's resigning from his job. Doesn't know who will pay his salary, right? Because yeah. we will understand what was the DNA of Abba. Okay, so I'm quitting my job. And... It was $3,000 that he earned. Not that much, but that was... At that time, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> uh, no, oh, yeah, but it's not that bad and it's not that good in the sense that you're taking your future in your hand somewhere else and leave that behind. And he said that he's willing to move forward to Washington and he will be doing that as an American citizen. And his most important phrase was, embassies talk to the State Department, but the American voters talk to their congressmen. So that was actually seeding the idea that leading Apex up to this day. Not everybody always quite understand that. Apex is not the long extension of Israel. No, it's not. If you would sit with someone from Apex, I'm Israeli, sitting with someone in APAC to dinner or to lunch or something. He will always pay his bill because he does not want any ties or any links or any influence on his work as an American agency, registered lobby that work for American people, not 
for the government of Israel. Maybe in the next episode we'll talk about uh, a film. No, we're definitely going to speak about APAC itself. Right. But that was the foundation. That was laying the ground. We are working for American people, and we work in order to create better relationships between America and Israel. Okay? By the way, it was Israel and the United States. Now it's the United States and Israel. If you'd see, you read APEC's notes, etc. It's always about why it's so good to the United States to have alliance with Israel. Because we fight COVID together, uh, we have an anti-missile system that Israel supplies to the United States, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that goes all the way to 1951, to that night when he decided how he wanted to establish it. So what did he do eventually after he quit? Okay, so that's the nice story. Abba Evan told him, okay, no problem. You would go there and you try to convince the American government and the Congress to sponsor aid to Israel. And then, Kennan which has the most amazing, it is so, because now when you get to look at that 70 years after that, you can understand how bright he was. And eventually he carried that out because as I told you, he wasn't part of the Israeli government. Yeah. He told Abba Evan that the right path to do that is not singling out Israel to get aid for itself. The right way is to aid the Middle East. Just like the Marshall Plan, designed to help resettle Polish in Hungary and Hungary in Poland, etc., after the war, and get some money to the government in order to exchange between nationalities. We need to do that. The very exact same idea in the Middle East, or the way they call it that, the nearest at that day. And the idea was that we will hand a package. The package eventually finished in $69 million to each one of the sides, was designed to help the states to observe the new immigrants that needed to flee out of their country, if it is Arab-Palestinian-oriented that flee to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, and if it is Arab Jews who fleed from all the Maghreb states, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, etc., into Israel. So at that point, the United States, at the budget of the year 1952, paid the bill to Israel, to Jordan, and to Lebanon. They couldn't do that with Syria because there was the Shikshali revolution that they didn't manage to close the deal with them. But Lebanon and Jordan and also Israel, benefited from the Jewish lobby. <laughs> yeah, but I want you to know something, and that's very important. And I made sure once I find it that people that dealt with that from the Trump administration that talked about the deal of the century would know that America already paid the money compromising the countries. There is no more justification, not only to the Arab states, but also to Israel to ask for confirmation for observing refugees from the 1948 war. Uncle Sam already paid that. It's very important to know that. And that was 
the most important step for him as the formation of the arm of the organization of the American Zionist Conference back in 1952. Just that as a reference, when he will leave office as CEO of APAC, 1974, the amount of money given by United States to Israel, annual sum, would be $2.2 billion from uh, 69 in 1952 to that sum of money. By the way, today, $3.8 billion a year to a 10 years contract that we already had two out of those 10 years as supplied by American government to Israel as an aid. Yeah, that was the agreement signed with the Obama, Obama administration. Obama, exactly, it's a, within the Obama administration. And was implemented within Trump administration, and now carry on, it is a 10 years contract, carry on to the Biden administration. So the amount of money that we are receiving, or the first dime moved from United States to Israel was in 1952, his first action, as a registered lobbyist to the best interest of the relation between Israel and the United States. So I really want to go back to 1952 because what he did and the way he acted within the Congress was something undone before. How did he work? And actually, I want to hear from you not only how did he work with the Congress, but also how he enrolled the Jewish community to support his uh, mission. Because I think that's also an important thing, because APAC, now we're debating, they have, uh, you know, also big supporters, but it actually started as a grassroots movement with, uh, now you're calling it micro donations, but with micro donations from uh, families and congregations, right? It's even more than that. Uh, what I was trying to do within my thesis is to come up with a structure, because Kenan built a structure that is un heard or unseen before he came. And I tried to find from, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, management theories. And I tried to find the most, if you would like to call it, the most uh, nearby model in which I can try to put it into a structure that is well known to the uh, management uh, discipline. And after a lot of working on it, I have found that the most accurate, if you would like to call it, model is the model that was uh, designed to, um, it calls the reverse pyramid, in which started as a model of uh, Nordstrom convenience store that the two researchers tried to understand how Nordstrom store made uh, so much money revenues more than others. And what did they find is that unlike the American methods that most of the time would work all the way in corporate decision, meaning if you work in McDonald's, for instance, if there's 32 pieces of sesame on a bun, there is no way that a local provider in Alabama will say, you know what? I don't want 32 sesames. I want just 15 pieces of sesames. You won't be able to do that because everything is centralized in the top of the pyramid. And reverse pyramid is something else, is to get the power 
to the people which is in the front and use them in order to push a better... Their what, local representatives, right? Exactly. So what Canada did and how I try to understand is a level of distribution, okay? So Canada, if you think about the pyramid, okay, and it's a reverse pyramid. The first ladder of the pyramid, which all the pyramid lays on his shoulders, is Canada. Okay, Kenan had only three people beside him. One of them was his aide, Rita, and two semi-in-half-time workers who worked for him all the way to the mid-60s, okay? So he was actually a single man operating. And think about it, we're looking at the 50s, no WhatsApp, no cellular phone, <laughs> no messenger, no nothing. You need to operate very complicated grassroots movement in order to create to a local congressman or to a senator the appearance of a very rush and very important issue to the people of his constituency. So first of all, I will try to explain you how that works, and then I will try to give you an example, okay? So Kenan would be the first letter. Everything will be on his shoulder. On The first level of distribution, just on top of Canon, I called them Canon messengers. Okay, that was his first circle, was around 1,000 people all across the United States that they were his immediate WhatsApp. Yeah, the, his primary okay. mass, WhatsApp group. <laughs> exactly, in our days. Okay, that was, by the way, what he used to do that and back in the days was to use the telegram. The telegram worked a lot of hours under uh, his uh, submission of uh, grassroots activists to the uh, Congress. So they would be the first thousand, okay? Then, And who were they? I mean, the, okay, were they uh, lay leaders great, or...? Uh... Great question. That's a great question. Because those thousand people were round up in different structure that was designed to both sides of the Congress. So a part of it was the organizer and the board of directors of the big Jewish organization. Now, why that is very important to Senate, for instance? Because senators look at big numbers, okay? So let's say you're Hadassah, okay? And you have in Florida in 1950, I would say, 30,000 members of Adassa. That is a big number. So a senator from Florida will have to listen to his members that come from Florida in a such widespread, important organization to his state. So a portion of his list would be people who come from big Jewish organization. All of the Jewish organization that was very important in the 50s, Bnei B'rith, Uh, American... The AZM. <laughs> all of the organization, okay? Some of them, by the way, political parties. Avoda uh, used to have one. Eurovisionism uh, used to have uh, leadership. And that was designed mainly to Senate. The other half, which was designed directly to the House of Representatives that back in that days would be estimated 350,000 constituencies, okay? They would be then listening 
or hearing, even to the level of a local synagogue, a local ACCA or something of that nature. So he would then make sure that the list would go to its congressman members, which is very important to them, even in a small numbers, because you would win a fight with very organized members of group. So look at the way he built it as a puzzle. Half of the puzzle, I would say 40% of the puzzle, would be the large organization, and 60% of it would be across the nation, all around the places, of people that can create the hub around them that they can be immediately activated. And I will give later an example. He had a lot to orchestrate. I mean, it's definitely, I would say, an amazing operation to run. Amazing, amazing, and very accurate and needs to work on the spot. It's amazing because he would then have this thousand people and after he would send them this telegram, they needed or they would do, I don't know if they did, but they, they would report him back. That's how I got when I was sitting at the Jewish archives in New York and there's hundreds of hundreds of pages of files of people who report back to him what happened when he's uh, asking them to do. This is how I was able to collect the stories. One of them I'm going to tell you very shortly about it. But you would see how he would send the operation and then how he get back from the people on the ground the answer of what happened, okay? So I would call the first level the canon messenger. The level which bigger than that would be Canon's information distributor, okay? So those are local leaders. I call them people with a voice, okay? That one representative in the city of whatever, in the states of whatever, would gather them and they would be their voice to the community, okay? And the last, but the most important layer and the most biggest one, I called it the Canon message carriers. That was the public itself. And they were the one who created the noise. They were the one who created the atmosphere. They were the one who created the political force to change the way Congress look at Israel. And why Israel, think about that, is, I think, by far the most discussed country in the U.S. Congress uh, since it was established. Now, uh, Definitely in comparison to its size. <laughs> yeah, I would say even more than its size. It yeah. is even in absolute numbers. The amount of time invested in Congress to talk about Israel and things related to Israel is a formula who started, who was created by Kennan, okay? And the way it was carried out is due to the simple fact that the congressman or a senator needs to hear what is important to their uh, constituency. So I want to ask you, because we are talking a lot about it, and I want to give like a concrete example. So if we're doing some sort of a fast forward to 1956, we right. have the Kadesh operation, right? or the Sinai campaign, as some know it. Right, uh, right. When Israel collaborated, it was actually 
supported at the beginning by uh, Great Britain and France, and then we conquered the Sinai Peninsula. Right. And what happened then? So this is the most important and amazing story. I wrote an article about that at Cambridge. You can find the article there. And I can definitely share the link, you know, in our notes episode, of the episode as well. Great. And I highly recommend that people were with that because that is the most important unknown story that I had the pleasure to uh, reveal it to the world uh, 70 years after what happened. So just as a phrase, we're looking at one of the most strongest president at the modern time, the second term of Eisenhower and in January 14, 1957, after, of course, he was elected one week before his second inauguration, he put to the public his methodology, the, methodology. Uh, of the way United States looking at the Middle East. The most important key there is kin or is desire to the Saudi oil. And that mean that Israel needed to obey. Israel needed to redraw its forces, and that was a very, very hard time on Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister of Israel, that was under a siege of one side, the UN, and on the other hand, it's the United States, with a president that is in the highest peak of his power. So, what happened is that Kennan understood that he needs to operate swiftly and sharply in order to give to Ben-Gurion the leverage of time, in order that the United States will eventually compromise that Israel, if they will eventually retreat from the Sinai Peninsula, which they did, it will be under a freedom of navigation on the Tyran uh, and the Red Sea. So that was a leverage of three months that he needed to buy Ben-Gurion in one hand and to put enormous, enormous, and let me tell you, if somebody will go on and read that, that he will find how much pressure was put on Eisenhower from Congress, mainly from Lyndon Johnson, which back in the day was the Speaker of the Senate. And in order to make that, he needed to create, uh, via his level of distribution, this nonstop, constant pressure on senators and congressmen in order to stop the administration. So this is something that I really want to tell because I find it amazing story. Okay, so there was this very tiny congregation in Providence, Rhode Island, that the Kennan messenger there was a judge, a retired judge named Frank Licht. And he received in Friday the telegram in February that is urging, is one of a thousand people, urging to put uh, that pressure on Congress. And within his scope, in his state, Rhode Island, the senator there was also the head of the Foreign Committee. That's why he was a key member in the puzzle of that story. So what happened is, Kennan sent that telegram. He received that in Friday. 
So he rally up his friends, his buddies in the small, tiny Jewish community of Providence, Rhode Island. And he asked them to come immediately the day after that, on Sunday, to a lunch in the morning in the local... Uh, Officials, yeah. Yeah. And they attended 70-something, I think 72 people arrived. And he boosted them about the importance of them helping the Jewish state in order to get that leverage of time Ben-Gurion needed so much. So once they finished the brunch, they went back to their families and they all went into the Western Union. And, you know, Sunday, they, it's a personal people. There's no too many people working in the post office in the Western Union It's Sunday. But they slammed the office with 1,200 telegrams to the president. Dulles was the Secretary of State. And to the uh, Senator Green, that was their representative, urging him not to put the pressure on Israel. Now, I worked and you worked as an aide to political member of the Knesset. We know what does it mean when you open the door on Monday and you find 1,200 telegrams on your table that you need to reply to them. You look at the very angry people and you don't want to mess with them. So think about the wire. This is just one story, but think about, you know, city senator and 300 congressmen opened their door on Monday, slammed with hundreds, you know, packed with hundreds, with thousands, with tens of thousands of people of their congregation telling them, you are not allowed to put that pressure on Israel. What I usually telling my students, it's just one sentence, Kobe, is that think about it as we were kids, there is those painting that you need to go with the pencil from one point to a point and connect the dots and then you get to see the greater picture. He that micro guerrilla fighting, going through all the senators and all the congressmen, he managed to stop the pressure on Israel to supply that important letter and eventually to crack down President Eisenhower on his peak of his uh, career and, and being president. It's amazing. And I will say that With or without the pressure, Israel would have uh, withdrawn from the Sinai Peninsula. But thanks to Isaiah C. Cannon, eventually the U.S. guaranteed the free passage of Israeli vessels in the Red Sea. And that's Which, by the way, survived all the way to six days, to 1967. That was one of the reasons why they went to the fight. Ten years. Ten years of peaceful navigation in the sea. And it is a hidden... Very, very important chapter, a glory chapter in activism. He was the coordinator. But eventually we're looking on hundreds of thousands of Jews who went to their local Western Union, urging their senator or their congressman not to put that pressure. Think about it, Kobe, it's amazing. It's, uh, you know... uh, For me as Israeli, when I get to read that, and I think we have so much privilege to get that backing, to get that aid 
you know, from our Jewish brothers and sisters from the United States and their help, you know, things now look like they're almost obvious that the United States is with alliance or line up with Israel. No, it's not. It's not. In the years, in the 50s, during the Eisenhower era, the tendency of the American foreign affairs was much more into the... Um, We can definitely crown him as an orchestra conductor. Exactly. You know? And I think that it wasn't just the vision, it was also how he did it on the ground. So I want to ask you, because our time is almost up and we definitely have a lot more to cover and we'll definitely discuss it further about APAC and, you know, what happened throughout the years between APAC, American congressmen and the state of Israel and what's happening today between Israel, the U.S. and the, the place of... Yes, the next chapters. <laughs> But I want you to tell us one interesting finding that nobody knew about Sea Cannon that you were able to discover. And then I'll say something to credit you for. So you start. There is a lot of them uh, that are known and, and less of them known. But what I think one of the most important stories that most of the people doesn't even uh, fully aware to that is the story of the pressure at the 60s on Coca-Cola. Uh, Coca-Cola, Coca the beverage company, did not declare that anywhere, but it was very obvious that they are not willing to push or to expand to a new market that might be in a place that can eventually hurt their sellings in the Arab countries. And what not many people even know is that back in the 60s, there was a local Coca-Cola plant in Egypt and one of the clerks in customs got Coca-Cola can from Chabash, then Ethiopia now. And when he looked at the letters, he thought it's a Hebrew letter. And there was a huge scandal in Egypt and they wanted to ban the sale of Coca-Cola. And I think that was a preview for Coca-Cola, the headquarters in Atlanta, that they don't want to deal with the pressure of uh, pushing the market to Israel. But after the Six Days War, when a lot of American Jews came to Israel to be part of this magnificent era of Israel, uh, some of the people thought that we'll find ourselves in the sea. And in six days, we managed to water the, the size of Israel with all of the glorious uh, war. They started to come to Israel. And they really wanted to drink Coke. And there was no Coke. <laughs> and that's how I started to create this buzz, which uh, started in the 50s. But the government of Israel in the 50s said, no, 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 we don't want American influence. Ask people to drink orange juice. But in the 60s, after the connection with America got deeper, and the Israeli government understood that it's a good thing to have a Coke. But as we said, Coca-Cola refused. And so there was a big story that uh, started to roll, that C. Kennan was one of the people who started to roll the story that made clear to Coca-Cola that there is a label, there is a price that they will have to pay if they want Israel to have its Coke. And they used in grassroots movement of the Jews in America putting a lot of pressure at the beginning, taking from soda machine in uh, 
ACCA or JCCA or synagogues or whatever from vending machine taking the coke. First, Coca-Cola still decided not to move anything. And then there was a strike <laughs> of the head of the union of the truck drivers in New York was a Jewish. Jewish, yeah. <laughs> guys, if you don't sell to Israel, we won't deliver it to New York anymore. And there was a hot dog store in Long Island that decided that they would move to Pepsi. And the pressure builded up on a week or two in the mid-60s that eventually Coca-Cola decided that they give up and they decided that they would hand the mm-hmm. option of selling the Coca-Cola to Moses Bernstein, which, by the way, was a guy who helped uh, Truman back in 1948 to sponsor the train that helped him win the election. So this guy with closing circles. And myself, as a heavy, heavy addicted Diet Coke, I bless Cannon every time that I open a can or drinking from a bottle uh, for him uh, allowing me to have this drink every meal or almost every meal that I have. I will say, why did they choose Coca-Cola and not Pepsi-Cola? Because as a kid, we used to buy Pepsi from our Arab's neighbors in Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> they had the Jordanian version. The Jordan. <laughs> I want to credit you, Kobe, not only for enlightening us today, but because of your research and your tremendous activism in Israel, Sikhenan actually was, for the first time, recognized in Israel and a street in uh, the city of Netanya was named after him. It was the first recognition ever of Isaiah Sikhenan in Israel. And that's amazing because we did a lot of recognition for many other Jewish leaders, American Jewish leaders. but. For some reason, he was forgotten. So thank you, Kobe, for uh, bringing his name back to his right place in history of uh, Israel and American Jewry. And you know, Kobe, I want to, you know, to add something about that. As far as I know, there is no other street honoring or building honoring or anything of that nature in the U.S., And I don't know who listened to us, but if somebody get to hear that, and especially if he's from Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, maybe the... If there will be, find a way to honor his name, to honor his great ties between the United States, building this enormous alliance between Israel and the United States. I think in some part or in extension To the fact that APAC, even up till this day, even though they are, you know, APAC, American Israel Public yeah. Relation, they never get to do any public relation for themselves. This is their goal from the day of creation of Canon. So there is no scholarship to students to learn about APAC. There is no books that were made by APAC because, as C. Kennan said, we are always behind The, the sins. The politics, exactly. All the credit goes to the politician. We're here just doing our best to help connect between dots, to connect between people. So his spirit started these days, okay, goes all the way till 2021 today. And therefore, because of the unlegacy of the organization, which they never tries to promote their legacy, I think that this is something, if somebody will, you know, yeah. in Hebrew we call that raising the glove. I don't know if it 
makes sense in yeah. English and will promote something in honor for him, I will find it amazing. Another circle that I took on myself in order to close as a historian and as a scientist. Well, I can, I can definitely relate to what you said. And uh, once we'll tweet the episode, we'll air the episode and we'll tweet it, we can definitely tag both APAC and, you know, the Jewish Federation of Greater Cleveland. I hope they will do something with it. Or, you know, maybe another uh, Jewish philanthropist will figure out a way to, you know, make this recognition because he was a great Jew. Kobe, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining me today. We're definitely going to continue this discussion about American lobby, Israel, and what's going on in between. I want to thank you and tell you good night for now. Good night, and I don't know if it's going to be before Pesach or after Pesach. Happy Pesach. Uh, Happy to- Pesach, whether it's before or after. Or after, exactly. <laughs> But one thing is for sure. The episode will be aired that we will not know if we have a government or if we don't, if, if <laughs> this, there is a new coalition is, or there is not. This is one thing that we can say for sure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, my friend. Have a good thank night. And good thank night. you to our audience who joined us once again. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.